The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you guys this evening. Uh, glad the rain was able to stop a little bit. Maybe it's still raining. I haven't been outside. I don't know. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of being a pastor here. Uh, like Garrison said at the very beginning, uh, we are a brand new church plant here on the east side of Charlotte that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. Uh, a couple of things I want to acknowledge about today and this weekend real quick before we get into uh, God's Word together. Uh, I do want to acknowledge happy Juneteenth uh, to you guys, especially uh, this weekend, a day of celebration uh, for so many, a day of, of celebrating freedom and rights and privileges. So I want to, want to acknowledge and celebrate that. Also, happy Father's Day. I uh, would love to give a round of applause for any fathers in the room, if you guys would, with me. Uh, also, that's you clapping for me, so thank you. Uh, happy Father's Day. Fathers, we know that you guys give a lot to, to sacrifice and to serve and to love uh, your, your kids and your uh, spouses and all of that, and so we just want to acknowledge you. Uh, also, we know that just like Mother's Day, uh, Father's Day is also a day that for many can be pretty bittersweet for a number of different reasons um, that Father's Day can bring with it, both joy but also grief. And so I want to acknowledge that if that's where you are today, if Father's Day is a tough day for you, uh, that you have a church family who wants to come around you and support you and love you, uh, and you have a, a perfect Heavenly Father uh, who sees you in the midst of, of that grief. Um, so Father's Day, fathers, we're grateful uh, for you and the role you play in your family and in our church. Uh, I'm excited to celebrate you. We do have a gift for you, uh, so be sure to, when you check out your kids uh, at City Kids, to go grab that. Uh, it's a little, little mug uh, for you to celebrate. I asked myself, what do I want from Citizens Church for Father's Day? And that's what you're going to get too. Uh, but happy Father's Day. Uh, grab a Bible. Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be hanging out. I uh, would encourage you, if you're usually someone who just follows along on the screen, you don't want to do that tonight. You want to grab uh, a phone or a Bible. You can grab one on the pews. We're going to be walking through this text pretty, pretty heavily. Uh, it, at first glance, might seem like a weird conclusion to both the book of Ephesians and to our series. I'll explain that and we'll jump into that in just a minute. But first, let me pray for us. And let's get into God's Word together. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to get to gather with your people. And it's, it's a gift every single Sunday that we get to worship you, that we get to sing about how you have made us citizens of your kingdom by grace and grace alone. That we get to read your Word, we get to hear your Word taught and proclaimed, that we get to celebrate you. I thank you that you never change. That you don't shift like our emotions do, that you don't shift like our desires do, that you don't shift like our passions do. God, but you are faithful. You are true and you are steady. So we love you. We praise you for that. God, help us as we look at your word. God, give us eyes to see, hearts that are soft to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we're wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last 14 weeks uh, on the book of Ephesians. I hope it's been helpful for you. I know personally it's been really uh, helpful for me to get to sit in this book. And uh, as you might tell from what Ainsley just read, today's kind of a weird passage to close on, right? Paul, throughout this book, has been saying all of these beautiful, rich things about the gospel of Jesus, our identity in Christ, who we are in light of the cross and the resurrection. And then he kind of ends with, oh, by the way, you have an enemy and warfare is real, so put on this armor and go for it. Stand firm and pray. But if you think about it a little bit more, while it may seem random, it's actually a brilliant conclusion. So think about all the things that we've walked through over the past 13 weeks. Think about how we've been called to live into and out of our gospel identity. How we were told to create reconciled relationships between us and those who are different from us. How we were told to take the gospel to those around us where God has us. That we talked about taking ownership and using our gifts to serve and build up the church. We talked about forgiving, blessing others instead of holding bitterness or, or lack of forgiveness. We talked about sex and marriage roles and parenting and job relationships. All of this stuff. And it can be really easy as you close this book and as you end this series, particularly in this time and space in which we live, to miss what he says in verse 12. To think, okay, I got to go do all of this stuff. I got to go live out of my union to Christ. I got to go be a good husband or a good wife. I got to go respect my boss or I got to treat my employees well. And to miss that Paul says, hey, in doing that, don't forget this one crucial truth. Your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Here's what I mean. We can think in our lives that the battle to read the Bible and to pray is simply a battle against our schedules or our sleepiness. We can think the fight to forgive and reconcile with one another is simply a fight over our egos or our pride or our boundaries. We can think the war to love or to serve our spouse, to push back against sexual immorality, to parent our kids well, is simply a matter of self-control or anger or whatever it may be. And I think part of why this is, is because the culture that you are in pushes you and shapes you away from a life full of spiritual realities. Here's what I mean. So Charles Taylor, about 30 years ago, wrote a book called A Secular Age. And in that book, he argued that we are living in a society marked by what he called an imminent frame. What an imminent frame means is that your life only dwells with what's right in front of you. That from the Enlightenment till now, the secular West has predominantly shifted more and more away from any acknowledgement of or awareness of or life's impacted by anything in the spiritual realm. So life is only physical. It's what you can test. It's what you can experience with knowledge. And so that bleeds into our spiritual lives. So we begin to think, okay, my spiritual life is just a matter of what is carnal, what is tangible, what I can feel. And so what happens is when we talk about, well, I'm struggling to read my Bible, I'm struggling to pray, I'm struggling to forgive, I'm struggling to do all of these things Paul is calling us into, we think in the natural way. We think only what is tangible, what we can experience. And Paul wants to close this book by reminding us our struggle is not simply against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual reality, and worse, he's going to say there's a spiritual war happening in the midst of our lives as followers of Jesus. And our secular age pushes us to ignore that, to forget about it, to live as if it doesn't exist. Now, there are certainly some of us in Christian circles who would take this idea of spiritual warfare too far, right? Car breaks down. Oh, well, spiritual warfare. Right? You go to McDonald's after 9 p.m., McFlurry machine is broken again. we got to cast some demons out of the McFlurry machine. 
right? We can take it too far, absolutely, but I would say the majority of us under 40 living in the secular West, suburban or urban types of culture, our temptation is not to take it too far. Our temptation is not to think about the spiritual at all. That's my temptation, to only think in the carnal, only think in what's right in front of me. And so what I want to do as we wrap up this book, as we look at these 11 verses, is I want to show us four things. And I got to warn you, they all start with W. It's very cheesy, but it makes sense in my head. So that's what we're rolling with. Four things I want to show us. The war, the weapons, the way, and the winner. The war, the weapons, the way, and the winner. Let's start with number one, the war. Let's talk about the war. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's a lot that Paul teaches them here, but his primary imperative in this passage is for us as Christians to stand firm. For the majority of this text, we as Christians are in a defensive posture. In fact, five of the six parts of the armor of God we're about to look at are all defensive pieces of armor. So that means there's a very real war going on with a very real attacking enemy. And Paul summarizes the work of the enemy of God and the enemy of the people of God, the devil. He calls it schemes. He says in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. Here's what we know about the devil from the scriptures. First, we know the devil is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. We know the devil is a slanderer and an accuser. That's what his name, Diablos, it means to slander or to accuse. We know, 1 Peter 5, 8, that he prowls around like a lion, slowly, methodically looking for someone to devour. Your enemy, the enemy of God and his people, is not neutral. He is not nice. He does not play games. He is scheming and plotting to disrupt and derail the plans and purposes of God in the world. And you, as a follower of Jesus, have this very real enemy, not just in the devil, but in all who work with him. Paul says, the rulers, the authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, spiritual forces of evil. In other words, the Christian life, you trying to follow Jesus, is not a walk on the beach. It's not sitting in the shade. It's not a game. Paul says it's a war. And I think part of the reason that a lot of people, myself included, have a hard time following Jesus is because we don't have the proper expectations. I think a lot of us, myself included, expect following Jesus to be more like a counseling session or a self-help book or a solid pat on the back. It's supposed to make life easier, more enjoyable, more rewarding, better, more fulfilling. Now, all of that is not wrong. Hopefully, as you follow Jesus, you're becoming more and more spiritually and emotionally healthy. Hopefully, following Jesus helps you grow personally. Hopefully, it gives you encouragement and faith to walk through difficult seasons in life. We believe the gospel is not just good news for death, but also for life right now. But Paul is clear, it is also a war. And if you're not aware of that, you're going to be flat-footed, standing back on your heels, not able to stand against your enemy. I love the way Richard Lovelace puts it. He has a fantastic book. I would highly recommend it. It's called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And this is what he says. Although part of the church pays lip service to the reality of sin and worldliness and even demonic agents, it seems to me that much of the church's warfare today is fought by blindfolded soldiers who cannot see the forces ranged against them, who are buffeted by invisible opponents and respond by striking one another. That's part of the goal here is just to wake us up. 
to wake us up to the reality that there is a war. This is what that means. Your fight against depression and anxiety is not just chemical or physical. It's also spiritual. Your fight to forgive your spouse for the 500th time is not just a fight against your pride. It is also spiritual. Your fight against addiction is not just a rewiring of your brain that needs to take place. It is also spiritual. You're in a war. One of the the battles of my life, to give you a picture of this, one of the battles of my life trying to follow Jesus is that I like to control people's opinions of me. Shocker. I don't like people not liking me. I don't don't like people the way they think about me. I want you to like me. I want you to think Tim's awesome. He knows every answer. He's a great pastor. He's a great friend. He's always there, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the relationships I see this play out the most in is in my marriage to Lindsay. So we figured out early on that I'm just not good about sharing what's going on in my heart. And Lindsay's very patient with me, and she asks very good questions and tries to draw that out. But it's like something happens within me that I just kind of clam up whenever we're having one of those heart-level conversations. Now, in those moments, I have a couple of options. The first option, when I feel that pressure to clam up, is I can say, well, you know, that's just kind of my personality. I'm an internal processor. Like, I just don't, I don't really want to talk. Or I can say, well, you know, that's my Enneagram. It's my Myers-Briggs. It's just not my personality. Or, or maybe I say, hey, well, Olsen men, we just don't really share our feelings. Like, that's just how we were raised. Like, we kind of just keep it internally. I could easily just throw all of these excuses of the tangible world at it, or I could acknowledge, hey, this is a war. It's a good thing for me to share and be open with Lindsay, but also with other believers, to actually confess my sin in group time, to actually share with close friends what's going on in my life, to actually open up about my wounds and my heartache and my joys and my celebration to my wife. But it's a war going on. So it's not just I'm wrestling against my personality, true, but I'm also wrestling against the spiritual forces of evil in the present age. It's a battle. We fight a spiritual battle. It's a war. And Paul says you have a real enemy and you must stand firm. Resist. Don't get caught sleeping. Don't get caught chilling. Stand. Knees bent. Eyes up with balance. Stand firm. And he's going to give us the weapons, the tools by which we do that. So that's the war. Number two, the weapons. Pick it up in verse 13. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So notice in verse 13, he says the word therefore, right? Points back. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, because our enemies are the devil and all who work with him, because we have these supernatural forces of evil against us, we cannot rely on human resources or our own strength. We need armor of God. So the admonition in this passage is not just to stand firm, but it's to stand firm with God's strength and with God's armor. In other words, standing firm is part of your union with Christ. Well, how can I say that? Let me show you this. All these parts of the armor of God that we read about here, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the gospel of peace, these boots, all these things are actually talked about Jesus in the book of Isaiah. So if you read Isaiah, it's this wonderful Old Testament book with all of these prophecies about a future Messiah and a future king and a future ruler. And all of these parts of the armor of God at some point in the book of Isaiah are used in reference to Jesus. So what Paul's getting at is we put on the armor of God. How we do that is by being united to Christ. 
It's a part of our union with him, this theme that is all the way throughout the book of Ephesians, this theme of uniting ourselves to Christ, of being united to him through the gospel. All of these, how do we put these on? Through our relationship to Jesus, through being united to him, through being with him, through waiting and walking with him. And then Paul goes on to the specifics. I think it's helpful, so let's dive into each one and spend just a little bit of time on each one. I promise we'll go quick. First, he says the first piece of the armor is the belt of truth. The belt of truth. We already said this, John 8, but the devil is a liar. One of the battles that you and I must fight is the battle for truth. The battle for narrative. See, the devil, as the father and father of lies, is consistently pushing on you a competing narrative that the Bible gives. So the narrative of the devil is that the world is all about you, that your life is all about you, that life is about comfort and more, and whatever you can do to set yourself up for being comfort and, and full of ease and full of just happiness and peace all of the time, that the world is something that you take and take and take from to set your life up for whatever you want it to be. That's against the narrative of God. It's against the truth of God. The truth of Scripture is that the story of the world is not about you or me. It's about God. That he's the main character, not us. That it's about his glory, not ours. His honor, not ours. His worship and praise, not our worship and praise. That our lives don't revolve around us. They revolve around him. What he has done for us through Jesus. And so what do we do? we got to get in God's word, and we got to get this belt of truth on, and we got to remember the devil is a liar. Hey, remember that sin? God, does God really, no, the devil's a liar. Hey, remember that thing? Doesn't that look so appealing and enticing? Like, don't you want to just go after? No, the devil is a liar. And how do we know that? God's word. How do we know what is true? God's word. This word that does not change, that was given to us by God, his revelation of himself to us. Listen, if you don't know the scriptures, you will always be a slave to whatever sounds right or feels good in the moment. Let me say that again. If you aren't in God's word, you will always give in to whatever sounds good or whatever you want or whatever feels good in the moment. So we have to put on the belt of truth. We have to get in God's word and go, no, the devil is a liar. And so I stand firm against his schemes by reminding myself of what is true about God and what is true about me and what is true about the world. That's the first, the belt of truth. Second, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. This part of the armor means two things. So first, it's talking about your personal righteousness or holiness, right? So if the gospel is true, everything we've outlined for the past 13 weeks, that you are a child of God, you're chosen, you're adopted, all of that, then God's righteousness is to be more and more a part of your life, a part of what you're going after. You're called to be sanctified, to grow more and more into the image of Jesus, Talked about this a few weeks ago in the midweek podcast, which I know we all listen to. Uh, but just in case, I wanted to bring it into here. We somehow have started thinking that Christian maturity means we get to do more and more stuff. Like we become the quote mature, strong believer who can be more lax with what we watch, what we say, how we joke, what we do. And the Bible says that shouldn't be the case. That maturity in Christ, longevity as a disciple to Jesus, should necessitate more and more righteousness, more and more self-control, more and more defeat of sin. And Paul says this is the breastplate. It guards our vital organs. It protects your heart. Paul says righteousness protects your heart. How? From you going apathy and apathetic, rather, to the things of God. 
Don't let the devil have that. Don't let him have access to your heart. Stand firm in righteousness. Say no to sin, yes to God. That's the first thing. It's talking about personal righteousness. Second, this righteousness also means you start to look at the brokenness of the world. So not just the brokenness of yourself, but also the brokenness of the world. You start caring and being broken over these things. Isaiah 59, this is one of the references to Jesus that I mentioned. It, it talks about this time when the world was full of injustice. And this is what Isaiah writes, Isaiah 59, 15. It says, the Lord saw it, that being this injustice, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. When you put on the breastplate of righteousness, you begin to feel what God feels at all of the injustices around you. You start seeing things that are broken, like the sex trade and poverty and oppression and racial injustice and lost people here in our city or across the globe, and you start thinking, this is the heart of God to step in and redeem it. And so we step in. I can summarize the breastplate of righteousness. It protects your heart from apathy towards sin, your own sin and the sin of the world around you. That's number two. Number three, the boots of the gospel of peace. The boots of the gospel of peace. Again, two things Paul has in mind here. First, one of the parts of the armor of God is a readiness. He says these boots are the readiness to take the gospel where it needs to go and should go. Understanding God offers us true eternal peace through the gospel of Jesus. And so you look out over the world and think, who needs this peace? Who needs the peace that is offered through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And Paul says these boots give a readiness. Is your missional posture, is my missional posture one of readiness? Hey, brokenness, I'm stepping in. Lostness, I'm stepping in. Lostness, I'm going for it. A readiness to take a gospel of peace, the gospel of peace to the world. Let me tell you a few ways this would plan itself out. So as you think about the world, you think about the lostness and the brokenness, and you think about the almost one billion Muslims across our world who read the Hadith. The Hadith is a collection of sayings from their prophet Muhammad. And one of the things that they read in there is that on the last day, the day of judgment, that they will carry their sins across a tightrope trying to make it to the other side. And the more that they've rebelled, the more that they've disobeyed against Allah and Muhammad, the more they're going to have to carry and dangle. You think about the peace offered in the gospel, right? That we don't have to carry our sins, that Jesus took our sins on himself on the cross. That we're forgiven, we're washed clean. Think about the millions of Buddhists across the world who think that they keep getting reincarnated over and over and over again, spending each new life paying for the sins of their previous life. And then you think about Jesus and the gospel. Now, Jesus paid the one-time penalty for our sins, so we don't have to pay the penalty. We don't have to pay the debt, that he paid the debt that our sins deserved before God, and so that through faith in him, we can be made right with Christ. If you want a little closer to home, you think about the fact that the de-churched, people who have left the church, will actually outnumber in Charlotte those who still go to church within the next five years, often because of stories of hurt and brokenness at the hands of the people of God. And you think about God's heart for his bride. You think about his heart for his people loving him, but also loving one another and being reconciled to one another, that we would dwell in the people of God forever. And so you say, okay, readiness means I've got the gospel of peace, and so I'm ready to go. I'm ready to step into the brokenness of my workplace. I'm ready to step into the brokenness of my neighborhood. I'm ready to step into the brokenness of my friendships, whatever it may be. 
Second, that Paul has in mind here with the gospel of peace is that he's addressing the peace we have with one another in Christ. That because of the good news of the gospel, we as Christians should be the first to forgive, to reconcile, and to live in peace with one another. So you remember back uh, Garrison's sermon, Ephesians 4.27, right? What did it say gives the devil a foothold? Anger, right? Anger is what gives the enemy of God a foothold with the people of God. Satan loves capitalizing on interpersonal conflict among the people of God. And so to take the gospel of peace to the world doesn't just mean to the watching world, but also here within the body of Christ. It's the first three, truth, righteousness, peace. A couple more, shield of faith. Shield of faith. Let's read verse 16 again. I love the imagery. It says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Love that. In all circumstances, no matter what flaming arrows or darts are getting shot at you, no matter what is happening all around you, it's faith to say, I know who God is and I know he can be trusted. Listen, one of the lies of the devil, one of the ways he's going to get you on your footing of standing firm is to go back to his original lie in Genesis 3. Can you actually trust God? Are you sure? I really, I got to forgive here. Okay, but are you sure? You sure you can trust him? Okay, I know God said I can rely on him. I know that he is kind and good and near to the brokenhearted. Yeah, but are you sure? Okay, can you trust him? Did he, did he really say that he's there for you? Did he really say that he walks with you? Did he really say that he's a good shepherd? Did he really say that he forgives your sins? Are you sure? Go back to the past. Put on this faith. Put on this shield that goes against these attacks of the enemy by looking back and remembering this is what God has done for me. Not in a hypothetical sense, not in a generic sense. Mark the moments. Take some time, take stock, look back at the last year, two years, five years, ten years, and mark the moments of God's faithfulness so that when the devil attacks with flaming arrows, whatever those look like, you can stand firm and go, no, God is good. I got this example, I got this example, I got this example, I got salvation, I got the promises of God in Scripture, I have a, a Bible full of examples of the faith and, the, and the, the goodness and the providence and the sovereignty and the care of God. I got a life full of examples of the care and providence and sovereignty and goodness of God. Shield of faith. A couple more. Next, helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. To fight the war, one of the things you must go back to is God's goodness in your salvation. To go back to that moment where you put your faith in Jesus, where you received forgiveness of sins and life forever with God. Here's the deal. Your salvation has a past, a present, and a future reality. Let me show you what this means. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from, now in the present, the power of sin. And in the future, we will ultimately be saved from the presence of sin. One of the things that your enemy, the enemy of God, loves to do is convince you that your past, present, and future are all in question. So past, did you actually have forgiveness through faith in Christ? Was Jesus' sacrifice actually enough? Did you have enough faith? Did you say the right words? Did you really mean it? Like, did you really, really mean it? Like, did you really, really, really mean it? He loves to question our present. If you're really a Christian, why do you keep messing up like that? Why do you keep giving into that sin? Are you sure you're not just faking it? Are you sure you're not just putting on a front? Are you sure you're not just doing what everybody else around you is doing? Like, do you really believe? Are you actually walking with the Lord? He questions our future. Is eternity with Jesus real, or is it just some fairy tale you tell yourself to give yourself hope in the moment? To give yourself faith, to give you something to make yourself feel better. And God wants you to be rooted, to put on the helmet of salvation, to protect your mind by remembering, no, he started it, he, perf he is perfecting it, and he will glorify it. 
He started it. He's keeping it. He'll complete it. Put on the helmet of salvation. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation. Last one, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. This is the only offensive weapon in the armor. The only one in which you stop playing defense against the enemy of God and you start playing offense is the word of God. You got to get in his word. It's that simple. You know this as followers of Jesus. How we go on the attack as the people of God into the lies in our life, to the lies in our church, to the lies in those in your community group. How do you actually go on the attack and start to gain some ground in your walk with Jesus? You got to get into the word. You got to read it. You got to meditate on it. You got to study it. You got to believe it. That's all I got for that one. Those are our weapons. Let's look at the third, the way. How do we fight? This is, this is the way. Verse 18 through 20. Yes, I know that's a Star Wars reference. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is Paul's means by which we put on the whole armor of God through prayer. We stand firm in the strength of God through prayer. We put on his armor through humble, dependent, petitioning to him. Paul roots all of it in prayer. He ends the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, all of these. Then he ends it by saying, pray. Pray when? At all times. Asking what? All supplication, all requests. For who? All saints, all the people of God. Just pray. Just keep praying. Keep praying. Keep praying. You have an enemy who's attacking you. Pray. But here's the deal, church. Our ability to be fervent in prayer... Our desire to pray is so closely connected to our ability to grasp point one that we are, in fact, in a war. Because if life is a beach, if life is a game, if life is sitting in the shade, then there's no reason to pray. But if life is a war, we have access to an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God, then we pray. This is how Pastor John Piper says it. I think it's so helpful. He says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is certainly that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. If you want to fight, if you want to stand firm, if you want to have a life marked by truth, not lies, righteousness, not apathy, peace, not anxiety, faith, not doubt, salvation, not insecurity, the word of God, not false teaching, you have to learn to pray. If you want to learn to pray, you have to learn that life is a war. You're not calling upstairs, hey, bring me a soda. I'm a little uncomfortable right now. Life is a war. Let me end with this. That's the war. God gave us weapons, his armor, gave us the way through prayer. Let me end with some good news. We also know there's a winner. I'm well aware you could say victor, but that's not a W. So we're going with winner. How many of you have seen Home Alone 2? Hard shift. How many of you have seen Home Alone 1? 
All right, Home Alone 2 is Home Alone 1, except they're in New York City. It's the same deal. There's two bad guys, and they're going after a little poor eight-year-old Macaulay Culkin, who's now Macaulay, Macaulay, Culkin, Culkin. It's fine. So they're going after him. He's, he kind of is getting chased by these two bad guys, and he goes into this abandoned house and kind of sets a trap for them, and it's full of, like, different things that are going to hurt them. So there's, like, a bowling ball on a string that flies down a thing, and there's, like, tacks they step on. Basically, it's two hours of Macaulay Culkin beating up some old, stupid criminals. But there's this one part at the end of the movie. He gets chased out of the house, and he's running through Central Park, and he, he turns a corner, and the two bad guys finally outsmart him, and they're right there, and they grab him. It's like, oh no, like the height of the movie, this point of climax, and Marv, one of the bad guys, he's grabbing him, and he stares him right in the eyes, and this is what he says. It's a dynamite of a line. He says, you may have won the battle, little dude, but you lost the war. Now, pay no attention to the rest of the movie. It's not important. Macaulay Culkin wins. It's not what it's about. Point is the quote, you may have won the battle, little dude, but you lost the war. Citizens Church, you may lose some battles. You may have some times where the schemes of the devil get you, where you give into temptation and defeat, and in all your best efforts to stand by the power of the Spirit, you may fail. And it's in those moments where you can hold your head high and say, hey, devil, enemy of God, you may have won the battle, but you already lost the war. You already lost the war. Not you will, you already have. Because here's what happened. Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, took on flesh, lived the perfect life that none of us can live, won every battle, was tempted in every way that we are to rebel against God, to sin against God, to give up, to go his own way, to do his own thing, and yet he stood firm, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, took on our sins, died the death that we deserved, and yet rose again. And in rising again, he defeated Satan's sin and death took our punishment, and rose victorious. And now Ephesians, one of the main messages is that we are united to Christ, which means if Christ is the winner, we share in that victory. It means if Christ is the one who's defeated death, then we also have defeated death. If Christ is the one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death, then we get to join him in the victory. This is what the Bible says about that victory. Genesis 3 says, Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. Hebrews 10 says that Jesus' enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Colossians 2 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How? Through the cross. Through the shed blood of Jesus. Through his broken body. Through the empty tomb. Which means you are going to face a lot of battles in the Christian life. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know this is true. There will be battle after battle after battle. The battle to say no to sin and yes to God. The battle to forgive and not hold bitterness. The battle to lay down your, sacri- lay down your preferences and to sacrifice and not to seek your own good. Battle after battle after battle. That you're united to a victor. You're united to the one who has defeated Satan's sin and death and one day is going to return and make all things new and there's a future coming that is promised where you will not battle anymore. Where the war is over, where Christ will rule and reign as he already does forever. So what we do every week is we celebrate that. We celebrate the body and blood of Christ. We celebrate the death of Jesus, but we also celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus didn't stay dead. If he stays dead, then he loses, but he doesn't stay dead. He gets up out of the grave, and he wins. He's the victor. He's a ruling and reigning king forever. And so we take a little wafer, which represents the body of Jesus, and we take juice, which represents his blood, and we remember that we are united to the victor. We're united to King Jesus. We're united to the one who has defeated Satan, sin, and death. And all who believe and trust in Jesus 
have promised victory. Victory over the grave, victory over shame, victory over guilt, forgiveness and life forever with God. So just a minute, we're going to take communion. We're going to respond through singing and prayer and all of that. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only things we'd ask you not to do because you'd be saying that this is true about you when it's just not yet. But rather than take communion, we invite you to take Christ, to believe that he is the victor, that he has won, that he is king forever. Let me pray for us, and we're going to respond to God's word together. God, thank you for your word. God, thanks for Ephesians. Thanks for the good news that this book has been for me personally. I'm just thinking about all the ways that you've reminded me of deep gospel truths that I'm so quick to forget and to move past. And thank you for the opportunity as a church to remember that we are chosen, that we are forgiven, that we are washed clean, that we are made new. God, all these beautiful truths we've looked at and all the implications of the gospel into our lives. I pray that we will recognize that the battle to follow you is a battle. Not be caught off guard, to not be surprised, to not be shocked by pain, by warfare, by our very real enemy. Would you help us to stand firm through the armor of God? Would you help us to stand firm through prayer, through the word, through union to Jesus, through the power of the Spirit? God, would you help us to fight? Would you help us to fight knowing that we might lose some battles? And that Jesus has won the war. That he's good, that he's true, that he is ruling and reigning, that you are making his enemies a footstool. It's not an unsure thing, God, that our future is set, our future is sealed. Help us to remember that. Help us to fight victoriously, confidently in you. We love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.